Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're doing a show from our archives. The show you're about to listen to was originally broadcast on the 4th of July, back in 2016. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Salutations, everybody. Are you burning up where you are? Are you choking from drought? Maybe you're getting torrential downpours. It's a weird mix of weather around this country of ours. To be honest, right now, where I am in Missouri, we are getting a day full of rain today as I record this. But then it is uh, going to be climbing back up into the mid and high 90s by oh, the middle part of next week. That's why Chester's sitting back there in the sound booth wearing uh, walking shorts and galoshes. You're prepared for everything, aren't you, Chester? <laughs> I understand. Well, anyway, welcome. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the show where we play old-time radio shows that we actually remember from when we were kids. That's because we're baby boomers. But you're all welcome. We not only play old-time radio shows, we play some music that we remember from when we were kids. We have sometimes some comedy clips and memories that we share. So everybody is welcome, and I think that uh, you're going to be highly entertained tonight because we have an episode of Dragnet 1954. They're working homicide this time. We have an episode of Our Miss Brooks that is pretty good, and we're going to finish things up with one of the really premier episodes of Gunsmoke. So it's time to get situated in that big easy chair of yours, get your feet up, get yourself something cool to drink, and be back here in about 30 seconds.
Oh yeah, well you are indeed welcome. Glad to see you. You guys are looking good. Everybody's looking good. There's still some seats up here in, in the front. If you don't mind getting a little wet. Okay, good. Well, to get things started off tonight, here is one of the most iconic theme songs of any show on radio or television. Been a few weeks since we played an episode of Dragnet, so we thought we'd get things started off this time with Dragnet. This is uh, an episode that was originally broadcast in February of 1954, and it's a pretty good one. Pretty good one. Uh, Joe and Frank are working homicide, and you're going to find a little misdirection thrown at you in this one. And then the ending kind of comes fast. So I don't know, in that sense, it's probably not real satisfying. But of course, this was a procedural show. And it really followed the procedure that was uh, followed by the Los Angeles Police Department in 1954. So here we go. From January, excuse me, from February 23rd, 1954, this is Dragnet and the Big Pipe. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. The body of an attractive woman has been found in a downtown office building, beaten to death with a piece of lead pipe. The killer has escaped into the city. Your job, find him. The documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, April 15th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Lorman. My name's Friday. We just left the murder room, and it was 7.40 a.m. when we got to suite 718, the building manager's office. <laughs> Miss Joyce? Yes? Are you men cops? Yes, ma'am. We understand you're the one who found the body. Is that right? Oh, that's right. I found her. Oh, it's an awful thing. This is my partner, Frank Smith. My name's Friday. wonder if you feel up to telling us exactly what happened. Oh, sure. It's just about the most terrible thing ever happened to There's me. There's something we can get you, ma'am. Oh, no, thanks. Janie brought me some hot coffee. Who's Janie? Janie Alquist. She works the first three floors. She brought me some hot coffee. I see. She was up here, and they let her bring it. All right, Miss Joyce. 
If you'd just tell us about it, please. Right from the beginning. You want to hear all about the whole thing? If you would, please. Well, I came on at four, just like always. I punched in and came up to the 10th floor and started in. Got the things out of the closet on the 10th. Mm-hmm. Usually I start on the 7th. But now and then I like to do it a little different, and I start on 10 and work down. Yes, ma'am. What time was it when you found the body? Oh, just a few minutes ago. I guess about 7, right around in there. I only had two more offices to do, and I'd be finished. I just had two more when I got there. Yes, ma'am. If you'd go ahead and tell us about finding the body. Oh, well, I unlocked the door, and I saw the light inside. I thought it was kind of funny, because usually it's dark. You mean in the office? Yes, and where Mrs. Fitzgerald's desk is, it's usually dark. Yes, ma'am. I thought it was kind of funny, like I said. But then I thought that maybe she was working. Mm-hmm. She does accounting, you know, woman accountant, and I thought she was working. Mm-hmm. So I knocked. I didn't just want to go right in if she was working, you know, disturb her. So I knocked. Mm-hmm. But she didn't answer. Right, go ahead, please. Well... I opened the door and went in. Right off, I was kind of sore about it. No excuse for a thing like that. No excuse at all. What do you mean? Well, didn't you see the place? Didn't you look? Yeah. Well, then you know what a mess it was. Papers all over the floor and ashtrays spilled, all that mess, and I'm supposed to be through at 7.30. Why, I'd never made it. Never got through on time. (laughs) And that's when I saw her behind the desk. Oh, it was an awful thing. And there she was on the floor, dead. Yes, ma'am. There was no one else in the office? No. Just Mrs. Fitzgerald. She was on the floor behind the desk. And what'd you do then? Oh, I screamed. Loud, as loud as I could. I wanted somebody to come up there right away. And that was the first time I ever saw anybody dead. Then I ran out of the office and went downstairs to get somebody to help. Just an awful thing. Oh, Poor Mrs. Fitzgerald. Oh, she was so nice. All the time saying hello when she'd come in early and I'd still be working. Oh, I think about it and I just can't believe that it's true. I just can't hardly believe it. Did you see anyone on the floor while you were working? Just Mrs. Fitzgerald. No, ma'am. I mean, was there anybody in the halls of the building? Oh, no. No, not that I saw. There wasn't anybody. I'd have seen them if they was there, but they weren't. All right, Miss Joyce. We'll contact you tomorrow about a statement. Meantime, I'll leave you one of our cards here. If you think of anything we should know, we'd appreciate it if you give us a call. Oh, I sure will. Anything at all, I think of, I'll call you. Mm-hmm. Can I go now? Yes, ma'am. I've got to go home and take a hot bath and calm my nerves. Surely. Oh, it sure is going to be a shock to her husband. Of course, not that he'll mind too much. I beg your pardon? Her husband, you know, Mr. Fitzgerald. Yes, ma'am. What about him? Well, just that it isn't going to bother that one too much. Why do you say that? Oh, I shouldn't have said anything. Not a word. I shouldn't have told you. I'd get fired, sure. Well, if it's got anything to do with Miss Fitzgerald's death, maybe you better tell us, don't you think? Well, if you'll promise not to tell a supervisor. All right, go ahead. It gets dull just being in a big building by yourself, all alone at night when there isn't anybody around. It's pretty dull. Mm-hmm. Once in a while, not real often, but just once in a while, I kind of read some of the letters that people throw away, you know, in the wastebasket. They don't want them anymore, so when it gets real dull, I read them. And I've read some in Mrs. Fitzgerald's office from her husband, Mr. Fitzgerald. Yeah. Seems like they've been having some kind of a big fight. 
going to court and all. I don't know what it's all about, but they've been fighting. And in the letters, he tells how she ought to leave him alone. I guess she's asking for a lot of alimony or something. That's what it sounded like to me. Some of the letters, the way he wrote to her, mean, used to threaten her all the time. You saw these letters where he threatened her, did you? Yes. One, I guess it was about a week ago, he said in that if she tried to railroad the thing through, now that's what he said, railroad the thing through, he'd come up here and... Yes, go ahead. Well, that's all there is. I couldn't find the other piece of the letter where he said what he was going to do. See, she tore up the letters after she read them. All right, Miss Joyce, thank you very much. No, I hope I helped. Yes, ma'am, I certainly have. I sure wish I could have found that other piece of the letter. No way of knowing what it said. Yes, ma'am. You suppose he really meant it? I don't know. We'll ask him. By the time Frank and I had arrived at the scene, the crew from the crime lab was there. Photographs of the entire room were taken and fingerprints were lifted from the edges of the desk, from the top of a lamp, and from the molding around the door. The murder weapon, a 15-inch section of heavy lead pipe, was booked for evidence. There was nothing we could tell from the pipe itself other than the fact that it was the murder instrument. It was a plain piece of three-quarter-inch pipe. One end was wrapped in a heavy brown paper. The other was blood-stained. Because of the appearance of the office, it looked as if robbery was the motive for the crime. However, on examination of the victim's personal effects, we found that two large diamond rings were still on her fingers. In her purse, we found cash in the amount of $226. On the desk itself, we found a woman's wristwatch set with 12 diamonds. The fact that none of this had been removed apparently ruled out robbery as the motive. The other employees of the building were questioned, but they were unable to shed any light on a possible suspect. None of them had seen any unauthorized persons in the place after closing hours. People on the street in the immediate vicinity were questioned. The only lead we were able to come up with was that at approximately 7.02 a.m., a newsboy had seen a short, stocky man walk from the office building entrance. Other than the brief description of the man's build, the witness was unable to tell us anything. An immediate broadcast was gotten out on what information we had. From a telephone book in the victim's desk, we got an address for her husband, Oscar Fitzgerald. It was a men's club located in downtown Los Angeles. Frank and I drove over to talk to him. Come in. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sit down. I'll call for some coffee. You fellas want some? No, no thanks. No, sir. You don't mind if I have some? No, you go right ahead. Room service, please. Kind of early for the cops to come calling, isn't it? Yes, sir, I guess it is. Uh, this is Mr. Fitzgerald, room 417. Would you please send up a pot of coffee? That's right. Oh, and uh, send a large glass of orange juice, too, huh? Yeah, make sure it's cold. 417. Right. One thing I can't go is warm orange juice. Like a cigarette? Yeah, thank you. Now, what's this all about? What do you want to see me for? Well, when's the last time you saw your wife? Ada? Thank you. I guess a couple weeks ago. Why? Well, can you narrow that down to a day? Why, any special reason for me to? Well, we'd like to hear it. Well, let's see. I guess it was around March 30th. I can check it if it's important. Where'd you see her? At my lawyers. We had a conference to try and work out the divorce and settlement. What line of work are you in, Fitzgerald? I think you'd better tell me what this is all about before I answer any more questions. If this is some sort of trick Ada's trying, you tell her it won't work and she can get off my back. No, it's no trick. I think it might be better if you'd cooperate with us and answer the questions. All right, but I'm going to tell you going in that if you try to pull a fast one, I'm going to deny everything I tell you now. If you tell us the truth, you won't have any trouble. Now, where do you work? Right now, I'm between. Well, what's that mean exactly? Well, I'm an actor right now. I haven't got an assignment. Where'd you work last? Picture studio. Look, until you tell me what this is for, I'm not going to give you any names. Can you give us your movements for the past few days? Starting when? Well, let's try the day before yesterday. 
Okay, I got up and went out to see my agent. Of course, that was a waste of time. Hung around the office for a couple hours and then had lunch on the strip. After that, I came downtown, saw a movie. I came home, took a shower, and I kept a dinner engagement. You prove that? If I have to, yeah. But you're getting no names until I know what's going on. All right, how about yesterday? What'd you do then? I got up and went out to my agents. He told me he had a part on the fire. We went out on an interview. I was at the studio until about 4.30, and then we went back to my agent's office and had a couple of drinks. After that, I came back here. didn't feel too good, and I went to bed. Well, the man at the desk would be able to verify all that, would he? Yeah, just ask him. Fitzgerald, how'd you get along with your wife? Well, it's not any of your business, but I'll tell you. It isn't any secret. I hated everything about it. You ever have any fights with her? Not more than five a week for the past four years. You ever hit her? You know, people win money for answering questions on quiz shows. What happens if I answer the big one? Well, that depends on how you're going to answer it. We understand you wrote your wife some threatening letters now, is that right? I guess you could call them that, yeah. I told her to get off my back and leave me alone. Told her if she didn't, she was building more trouble than she could handle. You ever threaten her life? No. I'm not going to try to tell you that there weren't times when I could have killed Ada. There were a lot of them, but it wasn't worth it, not for her. What'd you argue about, mostly? The divorce. I've been trying to get one for the last four years. Ada wouldn't see it. Finally, when I did talk her into it, the settlement she wanted was way out of line. I wouldn't go for it and told her so. What's all this about the fights and the threatening, anyway? Something happened to Ada, is that it? Yes, sir. She been hurt? I'm afraid it's more serious than that. She dead? Yes, sir. You think I did it? No, we're checking everybody that knew her. Okay, I told her there were times when I could have, when I maybe wanted to, but I wouldn't go to jail for her. Not ever. You gotta find another boy, and when you do, I'll go his lawyer's feet. Yeah. How'd they do it? Piece of lead pipe. Bad? Yeah. Rough way to go. Is there an easy way? We made a preliminary search of the room, but we found nothing that would tie in the victim's husband, Oscar Fitzgerald, with the crime. We talked to the desk clerk, and he verified the man's story that he'd been in his apartment the evening of the killing. Fitzgerald made arrangements with us to attend the coroner's inquest, and Frank and I went back to the city hall. We checked with the crime lab on their investigation. Lieutenant Lee Jones told us that they'd been able to lift several partial fingerprints from the murder weapon, but that they were impossible to classify. He went on to say that the other prints that had been found at the scene were unusable as evidence, since it would be difficult to get enough points for identification. The other physical evidence taken from the office was of little use. A check had been made of the piece of pipe, but it was found to be of a common type and impossible to trace. Microphotographs had been made of the serrated edges, and these had been booked as evidence. We asked the stats office to make a run on the M.O. of the crime, and they told us that they would start through their files immediately. For the next two days, Frank and I talked to all of the friends and relatives of the victim, attempting to find a motive for the crime. From what we had to work on, the only plausible reason for the killing was either revenge or jealousy. None of Mrs. Fitzgerald's friends or business acquaintances were able to point out anyone with a strong enough reason to kill the woman. Monday, April 19th, Frank and I got back to the office after interviewing one of the victim's business competitors. Well, that's another one that didn't go anyplace. Yeah, it seems like that's all we've been drawing on this one, doesn't it? Yeah, I'll check the book. All right. Anything come in from the stats office yet? No, said they'd have the rest of the run for us this afternoon. Well, first punch didn't turn anything. I got it. Homicide, Friday. Yeah, Jack. Anything on him? Sure. <laughs> We're no place now. Well, well no, anything's got to be... You want to give me that address? All right. All right, we'll check it. Good. All right, Jack, thanks again. Bye. It was Jack McCready. Says he talked to one of his informants this morning. Guy came up with a couple of good things, maybe. Yeah? One of them's about a guy in the Olympia Bar at 4th and Kohler. Fellow's pretty drunk, been doing a lot of talking down there. Something for us? Maybe. He's bragging about beating a woman to death with a piece of pipe. 
4.40 p.m., we left the office and drove over to the corner of 4th and Kohler, the Olympia Bar. When we walked in, there were only a few customers in the place. At the far end of the bar, a short, stocky man was sitting alone. In front of him was an empty shot glass and a bottle of beer. He appeared to be pretty drunk, and as we entered, he was talking to the other people seated at the bar. Any of you guys that don't believe it, you just come outside with me, I'll show you. I'll show you all, every one of you. Bartender, I got an empty glass. Now, let's do something about it, huh? I need a drink. I think you had about enough of that, don't you? What? I said you had enough to drink. Who are you to tell me that, huh? Who are you to come in here and tell me what to do? What's the matter? You think you're cops or something, huh? Is that what you think? You called it. Come on, we want to talk to you. You mean you are cops? That's right. Well, listen, you better get out of here and do it fast if you know what's good for you. You just better. Frank, yeah. Take your hands off me. You guys don't hear good, do you? Stand still. You come messing around with me, you're going to find out. You'll find out good. I'll give you the same thing I gave her, the same thing. Hold it, Frank. All right, come on, mister. Who are you talking about? I'll tell you who. I'll tell you good. And you'll know leave me alone if you know what's good for you. I'm talking about that Ada Fitzgerald, that's who. Ada. You go messing with me and you'll get what she got. I'm a pretty rough fella, you know. Pretty rough. Is that right? You bet you. You're not dealing with a kid, you know. Well, that makes it even then, doesn't it? Huh? You're not dealing with a woman. We took the suspect down to the homicide squad room. He identified himself as Carl Neely. He was handcuffed to a chair, and we ran his name through the record bureau. He had a long string of arrests for various charges, including attempted robbery, assault, and assault with intent to do great bodily harm. He'd never been convicted on a felony, but his record showed that he'd served two terms in the county jail for drunk charges and creating a public nuisance. While we were checking his record, the suspect passed out in an alcoholic stupor in the squad room. We contacted Sergeant Jack McCready and Officer Danny Galindo and asked them to make a search of the suspect's residence. In going over the place, they'd found a blood-stained shirt and a coat. The garments were packed in a cardboard box that had been hidden under the kitchen sink. They were brought downtown to us along with an empty envelope found in the apartment. It had been sent to the suspect, Neely, and the return address on the back indicated that the letter had been sent by the victim's husband, Oscar Fitzgerald. We waited for the suspect to come to enough for us to question him. Frank went out and brought back some hot coffee. We tried to get Neely to drink some of it. 8.40 p.m. It's not hot. All right, come on, try some more. You're cops, huh? You've been the route before. Yeah. What am I here for? I want to talk to you about the Fitzgerald woman. Ada? Spouting off again. You said you killed her. Figures... Every time I get tanked up, I always kill somebody. Whatever fails. All right, tell us about the Fitzgerald woman. <sighs> Nothing to tell. I read about it in the papers. This morning I started drinking. It always happens when I've been belting the booze. I right away tell people I killed somebody. These clothes here belong to you? Let me see. I don't know. Where'd you get them? Are they yours? I don't know. You got that many clothes? Hmm? I know all the clothes I got. No trouble at all. <laughs> You don't dress as good as me. All right, come off it, Neely. You're in trouble. Big trouble here. You sat in the bar this morning, told everybody about how you'd beaten a woman to death. We find these clothes in your apartment, blood stains all over them. Here's another thing, this envelope. Where'd you get this? Through the mail, like it says. You see the stamp? You know Oscar Fitzgerald? I don't get mail from strangers. Sure, I know him. Is it a crime to get a letter now? What was in that envelope? I don't think that's none of your business. Well, we do. What kind of dealings have you got with Oscar Fitzgerald? Well, you still work for him? Doing what? 
I took care of the place when him and Ada were married. Sort of a general handyman. When'd you see him last? I don't know, maybe a couple of months ago, around there, a couple, three months. Well, what did he find so important that he wrote you about it? Look, he loaned me some money. He sent me a check. It was a loan, huh? Yeah. You sign any sort of note for the money? Well, I endorsed the check. It said on it I was a loan. What are you guys trying to prove, anyway? You trying to tie me in with Ada's killing? You look good for it. You're off your rocker. I had nothing to do with it. Sure, you got me for drunk, but that's all. Your record makes you look good for it. Clothes we found in your apartment don't help you. You sure Oscar Fitzgerald didn't pay you to kill his wife? It'd be a lot better if you told us the truth here, Neely. I'm telling you the truth. It's right in front of you. All you got to do is open your eyes. It's there. Where'd the bloodstains come from? They're mine. Well, tell us about it. Well, I got in a fight with another fella. Where? A bar down on 7th. When? Wednesday. Last week? Yeah, last Wednesday. What time did you have this fight? Closing time. That'd make it about 2 o'clock, huh? That's when the bar's closed. Where'd you go after you had the fight? Went up to a friend's house and had a couple more drinks. Who's a friend? You don't know him. He's got no record. What's his name? I don't want him dragged into anything. What's his name? Jackie Meadows. Let me see your hands, Neely. Sure. You got some pretty bad bruises there. You must hit something pretty hard. Fight I told you about. That's where those came from. Tell us what you did after you left the bar. I told you I went up to Jackie's. I had a couple of drinks. What time did you get there? Around 3, maybe 3.10. What time did you leave? About 5. Where'd you go? I don't remember too good. I was pretty boozed up. Where do you think you went? Well, Jackie was worried about me being cut up from the fight. He wanted me to see a doctor. Yeah. Drove me down to Georgia Street Receiving Hospital. Yeah. I was there until 9.30 Thursday morning. call was put through to Dr. Hall at Georgia Street Receiving Hospital, asking if a patient was given emergency treatment on the morning of Thursday, April 15th. A search of the hospital records verified the story told to us by the suspect, Carl Neely. We checked through our crime reports, and we found that a miscellaneous injury report had been made. From the coroner's report, we knew that the victim had been murdered between the hours of 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. on that morning. We got in touch with Neely's friend, Jackie Meadows, and he also verified the suspect's story. He was booked in at the main jail on a charge of being drunk in a public place, and Frank and I started checking out the remainder of the list that the stats office had given us. Originally, there had been 12 names on the list. We talked to 10 of them. The 11th, a Norman Sitkin, had a record of burglary, attempted robbery, and assault with a deadly weapon. He'd been arrested and brought to trial on a charge of murder three years previously, but he'd been acquitted. The circumstances surrounding his arrest were the same as those in the Fitzgerald case. The main reason he'd been released a free man was the testimony of his mother, who had sworn that Sitkin had been home with her on the night of the killing. When we went out to his home, we found that he wasn't there. We talked to his mother, and she told us that he'd been in San Diego for the past three days. Under interrogation, we established the fact that on the night of the Fitzgerald killing, Sitkin hadn't been at home, but that he had been in Los Angeles. We put in a call to the San Diego authorities and talked to Lieutenant Mort Gear in the homicide detail. We contacted the hotel where he was staying in Los Angeles, and a 24-hour stakeout was placed on the location. Wednesday, April 21st, Frank and I got back from lunch. Better put in a call to Mort, huh? See if they got anything on Sitkin? Yeah. You want to do it? Right. Okay. Hi, this is Frank Smith, robbery. Yeah, I'd like to put in a call to San Diego PD Homicide Bureau. Yeah, Lieutenant Mort Gear. No, it's a homicide. Yeah, DR-132-549. Yeah, that's one. Mm-hmm. That's 3268? Huh? Well, 58. 
Right. Okay, Sam, thanks. I'm on this one, Joe. Oh, sorry. Homicide, Friday. Yes, sir? No, that's right. When was that? Yes, sir, right away. Cancel that call, Frank. What do you got? Sitkin just walked into his hotel. Frank and I left the office immediately and drove out to Sitkin's hotel. We talked to the officers on stakeout, and they told us that the suspect had just returned. They went on to explain that they'd given Sitkin no reason to suspect that anything was wrong and that he'd gone directly to his room. Frank and I got in the elevator, and we went up to the fourth floor. Yeah? What do you want? You Norman Sitkin? Yeah, what do you want? Police officer. Come on. You got no right to do this. Let me see your warrant. Get your coat, Sitkin. We want to talk to you. What for? What do you got to talk to me about? I got nothing to say. Get your coat. Why? What's the charge? What are you taking me in for? Suspicion of murder? You're kidding. Well, you just keep thinking then. You mean this is for real? Come on, let's go. Well, now, wait a minute. I want to know what this is all about. Is that so? Well, sure. Figure I had something to do with that woman who was beaten to death downtown. F- Fitzgerald, I think that's the name, huh? Isn't that what you think? Well, you seem to know all about it. Well, you're way off on this one. I got an alibi that you can't break. I can see you guys figuring because I stood this kind of beef once before, you can make it stick this time. Well, it won't work, cop. None of it fits together. I can prove where I was that night, every minute. All right. That's right, every minute. You check in my house. Happens I was with my mother, just like the other time. All night, I was home. You're going to stand on that? Well, there isn't any other way. Well, it's going to make it a lot easier then. Well, what's that supposed to mean? We've talked to your mother. She says you weren't home that night. Well, she's wrong. You let me talk to her. She'll tell you. You just let me talk to her. She's sure you weren't there. She's willing to testify to that. Get out of my way. All right, come on. Want to get the cuffs? Yeah. Hold still. Funny, isn't it? What's that? Well, it looks like he might have been good on that first killing. The one he was acquitted on. His mother might have lied on the stand. That's not going to make a lot of difference, is it? Huh? He's going to make up for it on this one. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On August 17th, trial was held in Department 97, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Norman Edward Sitkin was tried and convicted for murder in the first degree. On recommendation of the jury, he received the maximum penalty, and on July 19th, he was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary, San Quentin, California. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Frazier. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Virginia Gregg, Herb Ellis. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Watch an entirely different Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspapers for the day and time. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles.
Hear Rocky Fortune following John Cameron Swayze and the news on the NBC Radio Network. From February 23rd, 1954, that was Jack Webb as Sergeant Joe Friday and Ben Alexander as his partner Frank Smith working homicide on Dragnet. Pretty good episode, huh? Okay, we'll have more Dragnet uh, coming up in the weeks ahead. We've sort of been alternating that with uh, a couple other radio noir type shows. But uh, let me know what you think, what you'd like to hear in this spot. We want to make this sort of a detective, private eye, uh, sort of a mystery, mystery spot here on Boomer Boulevard. And we want to play shows that we remember from when we were kids. Because after all, we're, we're baby boomers. Hey, Talking about remembering things, do you remember this song? Back to 1959 for that one. That was Robin Luke with Susie Darlin. I was in junior high school when that was popular, and it sort of brings back a lot of those junior high school memories. It's a song you don't often hear uh, on the oldies stations, but it's a good one. It's a good one. And if you were around or a teenager in 1959, 
or close to being a teenager, you probably remember it. Excuse me a second, Chester's signaling me. What is it, Chester? Oh, thank you. Yes, thank you. Before we go on, uh, I wanted to cover something with you. I received a number of emails over the last two weeks from uh, folks that listened to the show. Last time we had an episode of Jack Benny, and you might recall that it featured Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume, his quote, Next Door Neighbors. And in that show, they mentioned that Jack came over and helped shovel snow. In, in fact, let me play a clip for you right here so that maybe it'll refresh your memory. Borrowing, borrowing, borrowing. What a neighbor. Well, Dolly, sometimes he tries to be helpful. During the freezing weather the other night when you worried about our orange trees, Jack did come over and lend you a smudge pot. Yeah, some smudge pot. Three old toupees smoldering in a broken pressure cooker. <laughs> But then what about the snow? Tuesday morning he volunteered to shovel all the snow away from our house, and he did it too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that was shrewd of me, telling him I dropped a dime on our front lawn. Do you remember that clip? Well, what everybody wants to know, for those of you that listen to the show, I grew up in Southern California, and I talk about a lot of my... Uh, childhood experiences there and, and my years as a teenager. And I've mentioned many times that it never snows in Los Angeles. Well, <laughs> what is all of this about in 1949? First of all, I don't remember 1949. I was one year old. But I did do some research, and here's what I found out. I got this information from the LAalmanac.com. And it says, snow in the Los Angeles Basin, where elevation ranges from sea level to about 1,200 feet, and where most of the population lives, is quite rare. So you have to understand, L.A. is surrounded by mountains, the San Gabriel Mountains, the San Bernardino Mountains. Um, most of the people live down in the bowl, or the basin, and that is uh, where it is, you know, very low altitude. Okay. Uh, the average low temperatures in the basin do not dip below the 40s and less commonly into the high 30s. For measurable snow to occur, temperatures at ground level must be at or below 32 degrees. Nevertheless, on January 17, 2007, an extremely rare light dusting of snow fell in the Malibu area and in West Los Angeles. Now, for those of you that live in snow country, you know that a dusting, you might see it on your lawn and you might not. It says the National Weather Service records area weather in downtown Los Angeles, at Los Angeles International Airport, and in my hometown of Long Beach. These locations, for the reasons outlined above, rarely experience snow. Snow does fall annually in the San Gabriel Mountains in Los Angeles County, and even occasionally in their foothills. The unincorporated community of Altadena, for example, now that's right above Pasadena, but you're getting up into the hills. It says uh, that town lies about 1,300 feet above sea level and experiences trace amounts of snow about once a decade and a measurable amount about once every two decades. 
Mountains in Los Angeles County may get snow as early as late October, down to 7,000 feet elevation, and by early December, down to 3,000 feet elevation. By mid-April, snow rarely can be found in the mountains below 7,000 feet, but may still remain on some peaks into the middle of summer. All right, snowfall records at Los Angeles Civic Center. In a 24-hour period, the record was approximately a third of an inch fell between January 10th and 11th in 1949. It says a bit more than a third of an inch. So I'll figure a third to a half an inch of snow fell in January 1949. And that was the snowfall discussed on the Benny Show that we listened to last week that came from January 1949. This article goes on to mention a number of occasions where in the basin, the L.A. basin, they had trace amounts of snow. 1922, 1935, 1947 in December, which was the month I was born. And then in 1962, it says there were was trace amounts of snow. Now, I was a sophomore in high school, and I remember that the whole town and the news and everything was all excited that we were possibly going to get snow. And I'll tell you what, they came on the news the next morning after the the night that it, quote, snowed, unquote. And the only place, at least in Long Beach, where any snow was seen was up on Signal Hill, which was a hill in the middle of town that's the highest elevation. And apparently there may have been a flurry or two up there. People were up there with cameras taking pictures. Kids were bundled up hoping to build snowmen. But if you if you know what flurries are like, there might have been a little bit of a flurry, nothing stuck, and then it moved on. And I never even saw it. So that's the story of the great snow of Los Angeles or of Beverly Hills in 1949. And I thank you very much for all of the emails I got asking me about this discrepancy. Well, there really wasn't much of a discrepancy. I don't believe that Benny was truly out there shoveling snow, or anybody was. A half an inch is not shovel-worthy. But of course, who has snow shovels in Los Angeles anyway? Or sidewalk salt, or sleds, or mittens, or any of the things that those of us who live in snow country associate with with a typical winter. All right, let's move on to our comedy corner for this time. Something familiar. Something familiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Ah! Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, coming tonight. <laughs> On the comedy corner this week, we are going back to high school. Madison High School, that is, for an episode of Our Miss Brooks that was originally broadcast on the 1st of April in 1951. This one is entitled Another Day. 
And it's got some funny laughs in it. It's sort of a silly premise, but if you can excuse that and overlook it, I think you'll find yourself really chuckling with this, especially when Mr. Conklin is involved, as played by Gail Gordon. Of course, Eve Arden is Connie Brooks, Mrs. Davis is here, Mr. Boynton, Walter Denton, and Harriet, and the whole gang. So let's go back to 1951 for another day on Our Miss Brooks. Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. And Palmolive Shave Creams for a smoother, more comfortable way to shave bring you Our Miss Brooks starring Eve Arden. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks under the direction of Al Lewis. Well, her salary as a teacher covers all her basic expenses... But our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, has discovered that there are certain luxuries that won't pay for. Luxuries like clothing, for instance. <laughs> However, last Monday, I dropped into Madame Amelia's dress shop to price some of the items she was featuring in a post-Easter sale. In no time at all, I discovered that if Madame Amelia would let me pay for it on time, I could easily afford the sales tax on her cheapest dress. <laughs> But thanks to a proposition Madam made to me, I did leave the store with four new dresses. At breakfast Friday morning, my landlady commented on one of them. Another day, another dress. It's a beauty, Connie. Thanks, Mrs. Davis. You've no idea what it's been like to sit opposite you during this past week. Every day a new dress that looks like the first breath of spring. Glad you like them, Mrs. <laughs> Davis. But I wish you'd cheer up a little. Your dress looks like the first breath of spring, and your face looks like the last gasp of winter. <laughs> What's the trouble, Connie? Well, you know the agreement I have with Madame Amelia, don't you? Why, yes. She said she'd give you a brand new suit free of charge if you'd introduce some of her clothes into Madison High School this week. I wasn't only supposed to introduce them, Mrs. Davis. There was also supposed to be an increase in business. But since you've been wearing the dresses, hasn't business increased? 25% at Dubarry's across the street. <laughs> That's ridiculous. The jump at Dubarry's is just a coincidence. You deserve the dress anyhow. Look at the work you've done. How many other teachers would want to wear a brand new dress to school every day? I don't know. How many teachers are there in the United States? <laughs> I'm afraid I haven't lived up to my part of the bargain. As a matter of fact, our agreement officially terminated last night. I was supposed to return the dresses then. But you're wearing one of them this morning. I just couldn't face my old blue jersey suit for at least one more day. Besides, I figured after all this time, somebody's bound to notice me. You mean no one's paid any attention to your new outfits so far? Well, I did get some encouragement yesterday. I'd been sitting opposite Mr. Boynton at lunch for three days in a row, and each day I had a new dress on. Yesterday, he finally noticed something different about me. What did he say? He said, Miss Brooks, you've got some eraser dust on your neck. The female members of the faculty admired the dresses, but they're evidently too poor to do any buying. How about your principal, Connie? Did he comment on the transformation? Mr. Conklin hasn't commented on anything but his newest economy drive. Another one? But he just ordered a big cutback in school expenses last month. That came from the Board of Education. This is his own idea. And you ought to see him enforce it. 
Why, I broke a pointer the other day while he was in my classroom, and before it even hit the floor, he had snatched up the short piece and filed down the rough edge. (laughs) Then what did he do with it? He gave it to a teacher with long arms. (laughs) Oh, he's a beauty, all right. That's Walter Denton. Be right there, Walter. I've got to run, Mrs. Davis. Thanks for breakfast. You're welcome, dear. And don't look so discouraged about the deal with Madame Amelia. You've still got today to put it over. I'll try. Just remember this, Connie. Whether it's modeling or anything else, you only get out of something what you put into it. Believe me, Mrs. Davis, everything I've got I've put into this dress. Walter, keep your eyes on the road. What in the world are you staring at, anyway? Just the most scintillating vision in the world. Huh? I wish I didn't have to drive at all. I wish I could just sit here and drink you in and all your intoxicating loveliness. Well, hand me a mirror. I'd like to get high, too. Honestly, Walter, this flattery is overwhelming. Oh, it's only your due, Miss Brooks. Gosh, I've always admired you personally, but the way you've looked this last week makes the way you used to look positively hag-like. I should have quit when I was ahead. The dress you've got on today's a knockout, Miss Brooks. What are those colors in it? They're chartreuse and cerise, Walter. They are? Of course, those are the fancy names. Actually, these colors are nothing but good old, down-to-earth, plain and simple, puce and magenta. dressing the last few days has had eyes popping all over the school. That's funny. I haven't heard a thing. (laughs) Are you kidding? Half the female members of the faculty look like Eddie Cantor. Of course, I'll admit it took everybody a few days to start noticing your new wardrobe, but I think I have the answer for that. Oh? What is it? Well, it's because everyone has seen you in that blue jersey suit of yours for such a long time. It got so that after a while, nobody ever looked below your face. Don't you think that hits it right on the nose? It sure does. Got a Kleenex? (laughs) Oh, I am glad that somebody's finally noticing these outfits. I wouldn't be human if I wasn't. Oh, don't you worry about that. You're human, all right. Thanks for the affidavit. got the outfits at Madame Amelia's. Uh-huh. I told my mother about them last night, and she said she must be a wonderful dressmaker. Oh, she is? Yes. Yeah. My mother said she wants to visit the place herself, but she was wondering when would be a good time. What is she doing yesterday? I mean, <laughs> any time all right, I guess. Oh, before I forget, Miss Brooks, uh, when I spoke to Harriet on the phone this morning, she said to tell you to please stop at her dad's office as soon as you get to school. Uh-oh. It's probably in connection with this new economy drive of his. I extravagantly requisitioned a new eraser last week. Isn't this drive a pain? He's even cutting down on our athletic equipment. Here we got a big track meet coming up, and he won't provide any high hurdles for the guys to practice on. All we got is the old low hurdles. Oh, that isn't an insurmountable problem, Walter. What do you mean? All you have to do is put up the low hurdles and let the boys run on their knees. Who is it and is your business urgent? 
it's Miss Brooks, and it can wait indefinitely. Bye. Not so fast. Come in, Miss Brooks. Now then, I'll come right to the point. The reason I wanted to... Miss Brooks, isn't that another new dress you have on? Yes, sir. It's really remarkable. Miss Brooks, may I ask you a question? Certainly, sir. Are you able to dress this way on your salary, or have you come into an inheritance? <laughs> no, sir. No, sir what? No, sir, Mr. Conklin. <laughs> I mean, I haven't come into an inheritance. But these new clothes, how do you pay for them? Well, you see, sir, You it's don't really... gamble, do you? <laughs> oh, no, sir. Well, I don't want to pry into your personal life. After all, you've worn that blue jersey job long enough. <laughs> Suffice it to say that in the past week, you've given the rest of the faculty something to shoot at. The dresses can't be that bad. <laughs> On the contrary, they're very smart. But to get back to the reason for your being here, as you know, Miss Brooks, I am in the midst of a new economy drive here at Madison. Oh, I know, Mr. Conklin. Mr. Boynton and I discussed it thoroughly at lunch yesterday. Oh, then you're beginning to feel the pinch. Certainly not. All we ever do is talk. <laughs> oh, yes, sir. I'm afraid everyone's feeling the pinch. Well, believe me, it's a necessary measure in these parlous times. Mr. Stone, the head of the school board, is coming over to my home this afternoon for tea. Naturally, I'm interested in impressing him with the strides we've made at Madison. Naturally. And it has occurred to me that an excellent way to convince him of the wisdom of my economy policy is to show him what a teacher such as yourself can do on a limited budget. Me? Yes, Miss Brooks. If you'd come to our home this afternoon, my wife and I would be most pleased to see you. In one of your new dresses, that is. Well, that's very nice, Mr. Conklin, but oh, I... Oh, and since it's a bit late for her to pick up anything, uh, would you consider lending Mrs. Conklin one of your other new creations? Just for the day, of course. Well, Mr. Conklin, I it's like this. I don't want you this. to think that this is a command performance, Miss Brooks, but you will be there at four, won't you? <laughs> yes, sire. Sir. Excuse me. Principal's office. Who? Oh, she's in my office right now. It's for you, Miss Brooks. Be brief, please. Yes, sir. Hello? Who is this? Madam who? Oh, yes, I know last night was the last... Yes, but I just have them back today. But I... Very well. As quickly as possible. Goodbye. Well, if you'll excuse me, sir, I'd better be getting into class. Nothing wrong, is there? Wrong? Or what could be wrong? I just don't want to be late. You know how hungry my pupils are for learning. Starved is the word. <laughs> well, you'll be at my house at four sharp, Miss Brooks, is that correct? Mr. Conklin, I'll be there with bells on, if nothing else. <laughs> Brush your teeth with Colgate. Colgate Dental Cream. It cleans your breath. What a toothpaste. What cleans your teeth. Colgate toothpaste. Cleans your breath. What a toothpaste. What cleans your teeth. Well, by lunchtime, I had almost decided to confess to Mr. Conklin that I didn't really own any of the Madame Amelia dresses. But before making that decision, I thought I'd discuss it with Mr. Boynton. 
When I arrived at the school cafeteria, I purchased my lunch and had just sat down to a table when who should come walking by but Mr. Boynton himself. Naturally, he stopped immediately. Sorry, Miss Brooks. I, I didn't see your foot there in the aisle. Oh, forgive me, Mr. Boynton. I didn't mean to trip you so hard. I hope your lunch isn't all wasted. Oh, no, Miss Brooks. Luckily, my salad landed right side up and my hamburger landed on my salad. Well, here's a napkin. You landed on your jello. Thanks. Let me help you pick up your dishes. Gosh, that was a strawberry jello I sat in. Does it look terribly messy, Miss Brooks? Mr. Boynton. In fact, it's rather attractive. I bet when you walk down the school steps, you'll look just like a sunset. But, Mr. Boynton, there's something I'd like to ask you. Oh, oh before you do, Miss Brooks, I'd like to pop a question to you first. Of course, it, it might be considered quite personal, but with your permission, I'll pop it anyway. If you're going to pop the question, I've been waiting for you to pop. Pop away, Pop. <laughs> Miss Brooks, that dress you've got on, isn't that another new one? Why, Mr. Boynton, you've been paying attention after all. Do you like it? Oh, very much. It's a very interesting shade. Uh, yellow, isn't it? Just where the butter landed when you dropped your tray. <laughs> it's mostly chartreuse, Mr. Boynton. Oh, it's very exciting. Almost identical in shade to the skin of a young frog. <laughs> the third or fourth lovely new dress you've put on this week. How do you do it, Miss Brooks? I just drop them over my head and pull up the zipper. <laughs> of course, I, I was very fond of your blue jersey suit, too. It held a sort of sentimental attraction for me. You know, that's the suit you were wearing when we met. Yes, four years ago. <laughs> well, I, I must admit, I wasn't too crazy about it at first, but, well, it, it really grew on me. Me too. I had quite a time chiseling it off last Monday. But about those new dresses, Mr. Boynton, I'd Ms. like Brooks, to... Brooks, the fact that you were able to acquire such garments on a teacher's salary is extremely commendable. Well, thank you, Mr. Boynton, but... Now, I've it... always admired a woman who can budget herself properly. A woman who can do that could be a real asset to a man. She could? Well, a man could hunt for such a woman for, for years and years. Four of them, to be exact. With a clever and thrifty companion, there's no telling how far a man could go. Go, go! <laughs> Continue, Mr. Boynton. Well, to, to sum up my feelings in the matter, I, I can only say that this type of woman is downright marriage timber. Timber! I'm serious, Miss Brooks. Seeing you in these new outfits has, has opened my eyes, and, well, th there's something I'd like to say to you. Pardon me, Miss Brooks, but I've got to talk to you for a minute. Oh, for heaven's sakes, Walter, what is it? I'm not interrupting anything, am I? Just my future. What can I do for you? Well, there's a delivery truck outside from Madame Amelia's dress shop. The driver says you've got four dresses to send back. To send back? Yes, it's just a temporary measure, Mr. Boynton. You mean the dresses are all going to be altered, Miss Brooks? No, Walter. Like I said before, just my future. Hi, Miss.
Miss Brooks, heading for Daddy's office? Yes, I am, Harriet. I just left him. I've never seen Daddy in such excellent humor, Miss Brooks. He's sure that your new gowns will make a big impression on Mr. Stone this afternoon. In fact, he said that your little visit this morning was like a tonic to him. Wait till he hears the Mickey I've got for him now. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid I won't be able to come to tea this afternoon. Won't be able to come? But why not, Miss Brooks? And where's the gorgeous Madame Amelia dress you had on this morning? In a delivery truck on Main Street. But I don't understand. You're wearing your old blue jersey again. Where did you get that? Out of a bundle I had ready for the Salvation Army. <laughs> it's a long and gruesome story, Harriet, but I had to send the dresses back. You see, I never really owned them. I was just modeling them for Madame Amelia. If business increased, she said she would give me a free one, but it didn't, so she didn't, and I'm back where I started last week. Shall we dance? <laughs> well, don't look so desperate, Miss Brooks. All isn't lost. Then where is it? You're going to love me for this I was so captivated by those new gowns of yours That during your English class I secretly sketched two of them Then I took the patterns to home economics class And we've spent the past couple of days Making exact copies What? I know you promised to lend one to Mother So it'll work out just perfectly Of course, we made them out of Airsat's material But beggars can't be choosers And after all, the main thing is not to disappoint Daddy but don't you think your father and Mr. Stone will notice the difference? Of course not, Miss Brooks. When it comes to dresses, women have been pulling the wool over men's eyes for years. Well, Miss Brooks, what do you think of my idea? To tell the truth, Harriet, it's not bad. <laughs> I'm glad we got home ahead of Daddy, Miss Brooks. It gave me a chance to reinforce some of the weak places in this dress. Now, stand still while I pin this basting in back. Where are the pins I ask you to hold? I've got them in my mouth, Harriet. Help yourself. Your mouth? Why, that's no place to put pins. Ouch! Neither is that. <laughs> Sorry. We've got to hurry, though. I heard Daddy and Mr. Stone go into the living room about five minutes ago. I must admit you copied the style of Madame Amelia's dress perfectly, Harriet. But tell me, what kind of material did you use? Well, we started with rayon, and when we ran out, we used muslin. Some of it feels like cheesecloth to me. <laughs> oh, it's loaded with cheesecloth. But don't worry, Miss Brooks. The way I've got it basted, no one can possibly tell the difference. I'll bet your mother will tell the difference when she puts hers on. Well, frankly, Miss Brooks, I haven't had a chance to tell her it's a copy. I just left it on her bed when she was getting the tea ready and then rushed back here to you. What? You mean to tell me your mother doesn't know there's nothing between her and a life of shame but some cheesecloth and a fervent prayer? <laughs> Gee, I never thought of it that way. If mother bends over or sits down too quickly, we're sunk. We're sunk? Your mother won't be in such good shape either. <laughs> You've both got to be very careful. I tell you what I'll do, Miss Brooks. If I see anything beginning to go, I'll give you a verbal signal. A verbal signal? Yes. Since we'll be having tea, I'll just say something like sugar and cream, Miss Brooks, or pass the lemon. Now, come on. Everybody's waiting for your personal appearance. With the wrong kind of a break, this can be the most personal appearance I've ever made. <laughs> to reason why. Lead on, Harriet. Right in here, Miss Brooks. Well, here we are, Daddy. So you are. You know my daughter, Harriet, Mr. Stone. Certainly. Hello, Harriet. How do you do, sir? 
And Miss Brooks. Well, that is an attractive dress you have on. Thank you, Mr. Stone. I've been telling Mr. Stone about the wardrobe you've acquired recently, Miss Brooks. It certainly gives impetus to an economy drive when a teacher can do what she's done, eh, Mr. Stone? Very impressive, Conklin. And thanks to the way I manage my personal budget, Mrs. Conklin has been able to enhance her wardrobe recently. She's probably jumping into her new duds right now. I don't advise it. Oh, I see she's left the tea right here on this table. May I act as temporary hostess? Uh, please do. I'd love some tea, Miss Brooks. Uh, sugar and cream, please. So soon? <laughs> I'll pour it for you, Miss Brooks. You stand still. Well, hello, everyone. Hello, Mrs. Conklin. Happy to see you again. Say, that's a stunning dress you have on. Yes, you look positively ravishing, my dear. Stand just as you are. Don't move a muscle. Yes, hold it for about 45 minutes. <laughs> I don't believe I've ever seen you looking lovelier, Martha. You and that gown are a match that was made in heaven. Oh, now, Osgood. Honestly, Mr. Stone, sometimes when Osgood pays me a compliment, he gets so extravagant with his praise, I could just split. <laughs> You're holding the wrong thought, Mrs. And <laughs> uh, May I pour you some tea? Oh, thank you, dear, but I can pour it myself. Bending over is good for me. Oh, but you mustn't bend, Mother. Here, I'll get you a cup. Oh, I'd rather do it myself, Harriet. After all, the more one bends over, the more one takes off around one's middle. <laughs> but, Mrs. Conklin, one can take too much of one's middle. After all, it's nice to have something between one's bottom and one's top. <laughs> Yes, uh, but uh, why are we standing? Let's sit down, shall we? Very well. Oh, wait. It's not healthy to sit down after a heavy meal. Heavy meal? But none of us has had anything to eat since lunchtime. I know, but why take chances? <laughs> you and your quips, Miss Brooks. <clears throat> now, let's all be seated. Just a moment. What is it now? I propose a standing toast to our host and hostess. Here, here. A toast to our host and hostess. <laughs> now can we sit down? Uh, would anyone like to hear some music? Oh, that's a great idea, Harriet. Get out your phonograph record of John Philip Sousa playing the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> now stop the horse play, you two. Sit down, Mr. Stone. Now, just where were we in our discussion, sir? Mm, you were pointing out to me, Osgood, what a teacher could do on her present salary if she really tried. Ah, uh, exactly, exactly. And not only a teacher, but anyone who lives on a budget. Take that dress my wife is wearing. Oh, now, let's not talk about me anymore, Osgood. Well, why not, my dear? Blushing becomes you. Oh, well, I'm just a little warm. I think I'll open a window in here. It's not that warm in here. Perhaps not, but I thought I'd like to let in a little more air. Uh, uh, please, Martha, just sit down. Very well. What was that? That was Mrs. Conklin letting some more air in. It sounded like something ripping. Is that your dress, Mrs. Conklin? Oh, certainly not. It's still the same lovely three-piece suit it's always been. Three-piece suit? Martha, stand up a minute. Yes, Osgood. What did I tell you? It's the same lovely four-piece suit it's always been. With two pair of skirts. Gracious, this, this dress 
is coming apart at the seams. But I, I don't understand. It... Neither do I, but I'd better get into my bedroom and change. Excuse me, please. Miss Brooks, perhaps you can explain what's going on here. Uh, not now, Mr. Conklin. I'd better go in and help Mrs. Conklin change. I'm sure she can manage by herself. Now sit down, Miss Brooks. Yes, sir. Sugar and cream, Miss Brooks. Get your own sugar and cream, Harriet. <laughs> Miss Brooks, sit down. <laughs> what's going on here? Not much, Mr. Stone, but an awful lot is coming off. <laughs> I'd better pour myself a cup of tea. Oh, the lemon, Miss Brooks. Where's the lemon? It went that way. <laughs> Uncle, I think I'm beginning to see what this is all about. I beg your pardon? First, you give me all this talk about retrenching. Then you demonstrate that what a teacher can buy on her salary these days is actually nothing but junk. I've got to give you credit, Conklin. Your idea is brilliant. It is? <laughs> You've given me a graphic display that too much economy can't possibly work in these days of rising prices. Osgood Conklin, you're really clever. Oh, come on. <laughs> Don't deserve all After all, my wife and Miss Brooks were a considerable assistance, you know. Yes, indeed. You, you and Martha would make a fine pair of actresses, Miss Brooks. Well, thank you, Mr. Conklin. I know one theater in town that would love to have us. <laughs> Which one is that, Miss Brooks? The Star and Garter Burlesque. <laughs> Once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, there wasn't much sense in sitting around in my drafty dress, so I said goodbye and backed out of the Conklins. When I arrived home, Mrs. Davis was most helpful and had just finished sewing me up when the phone rang. Hello? Oh, hello, Miss Brooks. This is Mr. Boynton. I've been thinking of how lovely you looked in your new dress today, and I wondered if you'd like to take a little walk this evening. Oh, you, you took me by surprise, Mr. Boynton. I'm afraid I dropped the receiver. Hold on a moment, I'll pick it up. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Boynton, but I can't see you tonight. But why not? It's a beautiful night. The moon is out, the stars are out. If this wasn't a party line, would I give you an answer? This is Burns to another Hour Miss Brooks show brought to you by Carmel Shave Cream for a smoother, more comfortable way to shave and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Our Miss Brooks starring Eve Arden is produced by Larry Burns written by Al Lewis and Arthur Allsberg with the music of Wilbur Hatch. If you like mysteries that are as full of chuckles as chills, be sure to hear Mr. and Mrs. North every Tuesday over this same network. And be with us again next week at this same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. Stay tuned now for Jack Benny. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From April the 1st, 1951, that was Our Miss Brooks. And the name of that episode was Another Day. Bob Lamond at the end. I always loved his announcing. He uh, he did not only radio, he did a number of TV shows. He did uh, the original I Love Lucy pilot on, on television. He did Leave it to Beaver on television. Of course, he did this show and a number of other uh, well-known uh, 
radio shows. He was born in Texas, but he graduated from my alma mater, my high school alma mater, Long Beach Poly High School, where he lettered in football and wrestling. And he had a number of odd jobs before he got involved in, uh, well, his brother was in advertising. And his brother, at one point in the 30s, asked Bob to read an ad for the radio. And uh, he did such a good job, he was hired on the spot. He worked for a couple of local stations in Los Angeles and San Francisco before CBS hired him as uh, one of their main announcers. Interesting, as, uh, as the television landscape changed and announcers that were identified with shows really became less and less common. Uh, Lamond, it says, uh, according to the notes I have here, retired from show business in 1971 and moved to Bosnall, California. I'll have to look that up. B-O-N-S-A-L-L. Bonsall, excuse me, California. In 1972, where he worked as a real estate agent. Bob died in 2008 uh, from complications of dementia. Bob Lamond, one of the really really good studio announcers that were such an important part of the early days of television and old-time radio. Before we we shift gears here and uh, leave the comedy corner, let's let's listen to a comedian that was very popular in the early to mid-60s, Jackie Vernon. You remember him? He always tried to play the boring guy. And he had some really funny bits. One of the things he did, he used to have a little clicker in his hand. Like you would, uh, used to be a toy you'd get in a Cracker Jack box. A little clicker. Some people use them to click train dogs, clicker train dogs. Well, anyway, he used to use one of these and he would pretend he was showing a slideshow. And it was very funny. So let's, here. here's uh, two different clips that I've kind of put together of uh, Jackie Vernon. I feel kind of cocky tonight. <laughs> Must be this handsome coat I'm wearing. It's a present from my wife. Came home early one night and there it was, hanging over a chair. <laughs> get a lot of my clothes that way. And we're going to do, where are we going to show the slides? Oh, that's a good place. This first slide, I'm getting my car ready for the trip. That's my car there, little blue job, 49 Nash Rambler. That's me inside changing the sheets. That was a heck of a car. Just made the final paint about a week ago. Don't run anymore, but I sleep in it. This is the first day of my trip entering the Holland Tunnel. The second day of my trip coming out of Holland Tunnel. Here I am at the toll booth tossing some money into the basket. Here I am under my car looking for the money. Here's a little roadside restaurant. I stopped and had a bit of lunch. The food was terrible. I never complained, but cream cheese isn't supposed to make noise, I know that. <laughs> horrible place. 
Now we shoot all the way down to the Everglades in Florida. If you've ever been to the Everglades, one thing you've you got to know is that it's dangerous country, and you must have a guide. It was my first time there, and I went to a place called Get a Guide Agency. <laughs> and there's a man behind the desk munching on some fig newtons. He said, come in, boy, what can I do for you? I said, this Get a Guide Agency? He said, that's right, this Get a Guide. Can I get your guide? I should like to get a guide. You got a guide I can get? He said, we got all kind of guides. What kind of guy would you like to get? I said, uh, I'd like to get a guide who'll uh, guide me. He said, have a fig, Newton. I said, I really don't care for any, thank you. He said, what do you hear about get a guide? That's from the guidebook. I said, need a guide? Go to get a guide. You got a guide? He said, you got a guide. Here's the guide I got. Name was Guido. <laughs> Very famous guide. In fact, it was known as Guido the Guide. His Guido the Guide leading me around a bed of quicksand. His Guido the Guide from the waist up. <laughs> That's his hat right there. Did the rescue party rushing to his aid. Did the rescue party from the waist up. Here we have a lot of hats, ropes, fig newtons. There I am back at Get a Guide. The man said, come in, can I get your guide? I said, I had a guide. I want my deposit back. He said, have a Fig Newton. I said, I don't like Fig Newtons. He said, come on, have a Fig Newton. We haggled back and forth. Here's my new guide. Son of Guido. And that's his hat right there. You know, I just got back from my vacation. This year I went up to the North Country, there's some friends up there. And there's a particular spot up there that is untouched by time, almost as if the Indians still live there. And there's a lake up there, and people come from miles around to visit this lake and drink in its beauty. Being North Country, the lake is half frozen all of the time, and this lake has an unusual legend about it. Up there, the old Indians will tell you the legend of the lake. The legend was related to me by a very, very old Indian chief. He said many moons ago, when the lake was very young, and before the white man came to inflict his logic and civilization on the red man, the only people who lived here were Indians. And the legend has it that a young Indian brave was in love with a young Indian maiden who lived on the other side of the lake. The Indian lovers never met, they never even saw each other because the lake was so vast. But every evening when the moon was bright, the young Indian brave would go to the edge of the lake and he would chant Indian love calls to the Indian maiden across the lake and she in turn would chant Indian love calls back to him. This went on for many years. Then one day the Indian brave could contain himself no longer. He had to meet his love. 
And so he jumped into the icy waters of the lake and started to swim toward his beloved. He swam about 10 feet out, frozen drowned. Until this very day, the legend notes that the lake still bears the name of that young Indian brave, Lake Stupid. <laughs> On the bank of the river stood running back young Indian brave. On the other side of the river stood his lovely Indian maid. Little white dove was a her name. Such a lovely sight to see. But they're tribes, but with each other, so their love could never be. Running bear, love little white dove, with a love big as the sky. Running bear, love little white dove, with a love that couldn't die. He couldn't swim the raging river. Cause the river was too wide He couldn't reach Little white dove Waiting on the other side In the moonlight He could see her Throwing kisses across the way Her little heart was beating faster Waiting there for her brave Running bear, love little white dove with a love big as the sky. Running bear, love little white dove with a love that couldn't die. Running bear, though in the water, little white dove did the same, and they swam out to each other through the swirling. Stream they came as their hand touched and their lips met. The raging river pulled them down. Now they'll always be together in that happy hunting ground. Running bear, love little white dove with a love big as the sky. Running bear. Love little white dove with a love that couldn't
what that music means. It means it's time to travel back in time to the 1870s. Time to visit Dodge City, Kansas, there on the prairie. Time to buddy up with Marshal Matt Dillon walking up Front Street, keeping law and order. Along the way, we're going to run into Kitty and Doc and Chester and the whole gang on Gunsmoke. We have a really good episode tonight. It was originally broadcast on, in March of 1953, and it's entitled Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers. And that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun Smoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Sure made himself scarce in a hurry, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, it looks that way. The plaza seems pretty quiet. Maybe he got the wind up and rode right on out of town. You're giving him credit for too much sense, Chester. Yes, sir. The only time that Mallard bunch stops is when somebody stops him. Yeah, come on, let's take a look in the Texas trail. All right. Something wrong? Kitty, I'm looking for Billy Maller. Ah. Has he been around? Take a look at the mirror back of the bar. He's shot up half the town already and passed the word out that he's going to shoot up the rest of it before midnight. When was he here? Uh, half an hour ago, Matt. Drunk and mean. I can't stand him or his father. Maybe they do own half of Texas, but I hate him. Well, they're Texans, Miss Kitty, and that means they've always got to be... Chester. Trying to... I told the Mallers when they brought their cattle up here last year that they'd have to act civilized. Come on, Chester. Sounded like it's up at the west end of the plaza. Yeah. It's probably the Occidental. Oh, just a second, Marshal. What? Oh, what is it, Mr. Kelby? About those pistol shots, Marshal. 
Now, I reckon that's young Billy Maller kicking up his heels. Well, in about five minutes, he's going to be kicking him up in jail. Now, 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 now. Let's not be hasty, Marshal Dillon. We have to think of the best interests of Dodge City in a situation like this. What? Those Mallers are mighty important people, you know. Own one of the biggest ranches in Texas. Always throw a lot of money around when they come up here with a herd. Well, as far as I'm concerned, he gets the same treatment as any other drunken cowboy. I'm sorry, Mr. Tobin. Now, wait a minute. All you're going to do is antagonize them. They'll turn their drives east from now on. They'll ship their stock out of Hayes City or Abilene. And you can't arrest Billy anyways. He's got that gunman, Tom Wayne, and 30, 40 Maller Ranch riders back of him. Look, I'll argue with you later. I got a job to do. Dylan, you can't do that. Chester, let's go pick him up. That's him, all right, Mr. Dillon. Stand in there in the light. Yeah. I see him. Must be a dozen or more of his riders with him. Chester, you keep Tom Wayne covered. The rest of them will wait for him to make the first move. I'll take Billy. Yes, sir. Maller! Got him. Local marshal, huh? Put the gun away, Muller. Why don't you try to put it away for me, Marshal? All right. Mr. Wayne, you'll keep your hands still and in plain sight. I said put the gun away, Billy. Talking mighty big, Marshal. A man with empty hands. That ten star of yours makes a good target. I got me a whole collection of stars like that. That's far enough. You'd better hold it right where you are. I gave you two warnings, Billy. That's one more than I usually give a man. Now you hand over that gun. I told you to take it if you think you can. Let go of it. You've been that gun barrel someday, Marshal. Laying it over a man's head that way. Don't worry about it, Wayne. As long as it's not your head. I'm not worried. I would be, though, if I was wearing that star of yours. Why? Old King Mallory, he don't like badge toters much. Especially when they buffalo the boy here. And he better leave the boy at home when he brings a herd north. Does he get away with this kind of behavior down there? He does. Well, here it's different. You can see for yourself. Maybe it ain't over yet, either. You weren't figuring on drawing a hand, were you, Wayne? It's nothing to me, Marshal. Not unless I get orders from King. Well, he knows where he can find me. Yeah, I reckon. All right. The rest of you men. You can stay up all night, spend your money, do as you please. 
with one exception. If any one of you pulls a gun inside the city limits of Dodge, you'll get the same treatment as young Maller here. Is that clear? Come on, Tom. Let's go. All right, Chester, let's drag him over to the jail. There you are, Mr. Dillon. All right, in you go, Billy. <laughs> he sure is out cold. Well, it's better than having a bullet in the stomach. That's what he was asking for. He certainly was. I declare, Mr. Dillon, if you don't stop taking chances when a man's already got a gun in his hand... Chester, you can't shoot every cowboy who has a snort or two and starts to take it out on the town. I know, sir, but... There Here, hand no me sense. that bucket of water there in the corridor, will you? Yes, sir. Yeah. All right, Billy. Yeah, that ought to bring him around. All right, Chester, lock up the cell. Just a minute there, Marshal. Don't lock that cell. Lock it up, Chester. Yes, sir. Yeah, I just told you to stop that matter. Didn't you hear me? I can probably hear you clear back in Texas. Now, what's on your mind? I'll tell you what's on my mind. I want my boy out of that cell. I want him out in a hurry. Come around in the morning when the court opens. He's under arrest. Arrest? You? I can buy you in this 30-cent town of yours and never know the difference. Maybe. But we'd know it. Now you shut up and get out of here. I've argued about this long enough. Either you'll open that cell or hand over the key. I'm sorry. Uh, you there, come on, hand them over. Here now, Mr. Mallard. What King, you've gone far enough. Do you think some tin horn is going to... All right. I said leave him alone. Let let go of me, Dylan. Chester, unlock the cell. Yes, sir. I'm warning you, Marshal, for the last time. If you don't get your hands off me... Sure, King. And there you go. Now lock it up, Chester. Yes, sir. I'll, I'll break you, Dylan. I'll break you and run you out of the country. Sure. Sure, I know. But you'll have to wait till tomorrow morning. Kind of quiet around town, Mr. Dillon, with them mallards locked up. Well, you and Chester look thirsty, Matt. I brought you a pitcher of beer. On the house. Well, that's not a bad idea, Kitty. Well, thank you. I heard about the mallards. They ought to be locked up in the same cell. They're two of a kind. Well, Kitty, it's... I don't know. Kid always has had his way paved for him by the... Old man's money. I don't know who's more to blame. Excuse me, Kitty. Uh-huh. But uh, I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to do here. Uh, well, you'll learn, honey. Oh, Matt, I don't think you've met Nora Beale. Huh? Matt Dillon, Nora. And uh, Chester Proudfoot. Right, proud How to know you. you. How do you do, ma'am? Well, Nora, honey, all you got to do right now is just stand around and look beautiful. I'll be along in a second and show you the ropes. Oh, well, thank you, Kitty. I'm very pleased to have met both of you. Thank you. Likewise, ma'am. 
Oh, where'd she come from? She's new in Dodge, isn't she? Oh, yeah. She's real sweet, Matt. She's a singer from Chicago or somewhere. She got stranded here a couple of days ago. She only plans to work a week Excuse and make enough me, Miss Kitty. Mr. Dillon, look. There's King Maller. What? Over at the bar there with Mr. Kelby. Well, what's he doing out of jail, Matt? My gracious, you arrest a man and throw him in jail, and an hour and a half later he's out loose again. It's aggravating. But I'm sure he didn't mean any harm by it, Mr. Miller. It's just that sometimes he's got... Well, now. Now, Marshal, let's keep our temper. Shut up. King, how did you get out of jail? When I've got anything to say to you, Dylan, I'll look you up. Now, now, Marshal, it's all perfectly legal. Mayor came down to his office, he fixed bail, and he released Mr. Maller and his son. They're both out, huh? Who went bail for this, Covey? Now, it's all in the best interest of the town, Marshal. Just like I've been telling Mr. Maller here. It was just a misunderstanding, and all of us hope he won't hold it against it. Covey, I ought to run you in for obstructing justice. Somebody fired from the street, Mr. Dillon. I'll go out there. Max! Max! What? What is it, Kitty? Nora Bill got hit, Max. She's hurt. Bad. Over here, Matt. Lay her over here on the poker table. Uh, all right, Kitty. Oh, oh. Easy now, Matt. It's all right. Sorry, boys. Whoever had the high hands got a lot. There, Matt. All right, Kitty. Uh, here, let me slip this coat under her head. Uh, 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 there. Uh, did somebody send for Doc? Uh, yeah, when the dealers went after him. Oh. There, now. Now, look, Nora. Don't try to move now. Looks like she was hit twice. Uh, Matt, do you think... Does she have a chance at all? I don't know, Kitty. Oh, poor kid. Oh, 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 It's all right, honey. Doc will be here soon. What? Why did they shoot me? Well, I... I think they were trying to get me, Nora. Not you. Why did they do it? Why? Oh. Oh, where's Doc? Why doesn't he get here? Do you want me to go after Mr. Dillon? Oh, please, I... I feel so... So... I... No, Chester, there's no need for Doc to hurry now. Matt, she was so... So... Yeah. Well... Doc can take care of her when he gets here. Looks like Billy Maller really pulled something this time, Mr. Dillon. No? How do you know it was Billy, Chester? Well, sir, half a dozen people saw him fire through the window and then ride off down the street. Yeah. I got a feeling those shots weren't wild. They were aimed. Only they were aimed at me. You were just lucky, Mr. Dillon. 
Where's Billy now, Chester? I don't know, sir. I heard the Maller bunch is getting ready to pull out. They're milling around the street out in front of their hotel. King Maller and Tom Wayne are there. Yeah. Well, they'll cover Billy, of course. It's going to be a lot tougher this time. Yes, sir. A whole lot tougher, I reckon. Kitty? Yes. Will you sort of take charge of things here until Doc shows up? Oh, sure, Matt. You go on. Get your posse. Posse? You'll need one, Matt. When you move in with a posse, you ask for a gunfight. Works on a man like an out-and-out challenge. I'm going to handle it alone. But there must be 50 of them, Matt. Only three that count, as long as we can control the Mallers and Tom Wayne. The others don't matter. Marshal! Huh? Oh, Kelvy. You got another suggestion for the best interests of the town? Now, listen here. You can't go up there, Marshal. That'll just lead to more killing. Won't do anybody any good. This wouldn't have happened, you know, if you'd taken my advice, not thrown that boy in jail. And it wouldn't have happened if you'd have stayed out of it and left him in jail, Kelvy. Tomorrow morning, he'd have sobered up and cooled off. Well, what's done's done. But they're getting ready to leave now. You can pass the word for King not to bring the boy along when he comes up next year and let it go at that. Don't make it any worse now, Marshal. Let it go at that, huh? Don't antagonize him, huh? Look the other way. It's just Billy Maller kicking up his heels, so let's stay real quiet. Maybe he won't commit another murder. Murder? It wasn't murder. That was an accident. It was murder. He meant to kill somebody, and he did. The only accident about it was the fact that he didn't kill me. Well, it's just a common dance hall girl. Nobody's going to pay any mind. I mind, Kelvy. And the law minds. And you stay out of this from now on. You understand me. Now, Dylan, you're not talking to some saddle bum. Yeah. Chester. Yes, sir. Matt? Yeah, Kitty. It's not going to help to go get yourself killed. It seems to me I'm being sold awful short around here. They outnumber you 20 to 1. Kitty, if I let Mallard get away with this, I'd be through in Dodge City, and so with the law. It was hard work bringing the law in here. And it's been hard work keeping it here. And it'd be ten times harder trying to bring it back if it ever got shoved out. Yeah. All right, Matt. But do one thing, will you? What? Wait here. I'll be right back. Give me the shotgun, Red. Right. Here. Take this shotgun with you. Red keeps it back of the bar, but you take it, Matt. It'll help the odds a little, at least. It, it's a good idea, Mr. Dillon. I'd sure feel a lot easier in my mind if you took it. Well... All right. Thanks, Kitty. I'll see you. She was a pretty little thing. Yeah. Seems a shame. There they are, Mr. Dillon. Out there in the street in front of the hotel. Yeah, I see them. Looks like the whole Maller mob. This ain't gonna be very easy. 
Uh, King and Wayne are there, but I don't see Billy. No, sir, I don't either. Those two are the ones to watch, Chester. Don't let them start a play. Yes, Mr. Dillon, I understand. Here comes Marshal, Mr. Mallard. King, I want that boy of yours. What's he charged this time, Dillon? Murder. That girl died. She died. Now, where's Billy? Where'd you get the idea he had anything to do with it? Half a dozen people saw him fire the shots from the street. Well, I say he wasn't near that street. Well, don't say it to me. Say it in court. Now, where is he, King? Marshal, there's 40 of my riders standing here in the street, every one of them packing a gun. I suppose you just turn around and start walking. I said, where's Billy? All I got to do is give the word, Dylan. These boys will drop you right in your track. You're not giving anybody the word, <clears throat> King. Huh? Buckshot's got a pretty fair spread. Now, at the first sign of any move by this bunch, and I'll get you and Wayne with one blast. Now, you better warn him, King. <coughs> Dylan, you're barking up the wrong tree here. Billy rode out of town, headed south. That's his horse tied there at the rail, isn't it? All right, where is he, King? Inside the hotel? Now, look, Marshal, there's no call for all this. Maybe Billy did get a little bit out of line... He's always been a high-spirited young'un, but there's no reason for us to lose our heads. You know you got no case against him. Every one of my men here will swear he wasn't anywhere near that shoot. They'll get their chance at the trial. Well, now, that's just the trouble. We can't hang around here waiting for a trial. It's cost me money, but I'm willing to spend quite a bit, Marshal, to avoid the inconvenience. Never mind, King. Don't be a fool, Mark. Shut up. Wayne, move over a little closer to him, him. All right, that's it right there. All right. The rest of you men fish your guns out and drop them on the ground. Now, slow and easy. No sudden moves. Watch him, Chester. Yes, sir, I am. All right. Back up now, out into the street, away from those guns. A whole bunch of you. Move! Here, Chester, take the shotgun. Keep him covered. Yes, sir. Hold it now. Just like you are. Nobody will get hurt. Dylan, what you gonna do? I'm going in the hotel and bring out that kid. Watch him, Chester. Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. Lawson? Yeah? He's upstairs somewhere. Alone? 
Yes, sir. Everybody else cleared out. Well, now's your time. Go ahead if you want. The Mallers won't bother you. Thank you, Marshal. And the best of luck to you, sir. Better give up. got a chance if you know what's going Now hold it, Billy. Throw your gun out into the hall. I'm going to kill you, Dylan. It's your last chance, Billy. Now come out into the hall and give yourself up. I'll kill you, so help me. Gave him two chances. He wouldn't take them. Yeah. Headstrong. Always was. Guess maybe... Maybe I didn't bring him up right. It's too late to worry about that now. But... Uh, I'm sorry, King. For Billy and... For the girl both. He had it coming. I know that, Marshal. I tried to stop it. Too late. The only way I knew. But you wouldn't bluff. Tom, go get him. We'll have to bury him in Kansas. All right, King. 
We'll be leaving Dodge right after. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Les Crutchfield, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Sam Edwards, John Daner, Lawrence Dobkin, Harry Bartell, Charlotte Lawrence, and Barney Phillips. Harley Bear is Chester, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Every Sunday evening, CBS Radio presents My Little Margie, a hilarious comedy show starring Charles Farrell and Gail Storm. It's a worthy addition to the Sunday Funday lineup, a program that's packed with laughs from start to finish. Listen for My Little Margie on most of these same stations, tomorrow night presented by CBS Radio. This is the CBS Radio Network. As originally broadcast March 7th, 1953, that was Gunsmoke, and the name of that story was Absalom, based on King David in the Bible. Uh, His son Absalom was the one that usurped his throne and misused his authority and tried to get the people to follow him instead of David. I think that's one of the truly elite episodes of Gunsmoke, and of course we're going to have another Gunsmoke on the show next time. She was on the 16, on the 16. I loved her so, but she was too young to fall in love, and I was too young to know. We'd laugh and we'd sing and do the little thing. That made my heart glow But she was too young To fall in love And I was too young To know Why did I give My heart so fast It never will happen again But I was a mere Lad of sixteen I've aged a year since then She on the 16, on the 16, with eyes that would glow, but she was too young to fall in love, and I was too young to know. Then why did you give your heart so fast? Boy, it never will happen again. But you were a mere lad of 16. I've aged a year since then She was on the 16 On the 16 With eyes that would glow 
But she was too young to fall in love And I was too young to know But she was too young to fall in love And I was too young to know That was Sam Cooke. We remember listening to that one on our little plastic portable radios on the beach back in 1960 or 61 or something like that. What a rich voice he had, clear and rich. Died very young under tragic circumstances. Well, Chester is pointing at his watch. He's telling us it is time to pick up all of our shows and carry them back into the vault. and I were just talking about how fast two hours goes by. Seems like we just sat down together and now it's time to put on our coats and hats and head out the door, or in Chester's case, put on his galoshes. It's raining pretty good out there right now. Raining pretty good. Well, we hope you enjoyed our selections this time. Come back in two weeks. We'll do it all over again. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by. And I'm so glad you met me. Mm-hmm.